You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. We're going to read Exodus 14, uh, verse 10. This is the story of the Red Sea splitting. Do you know the story? When the sea splits and they go across and then the Egyptians are stuck in the middle. They're like, dang it, we shouldn't have followed them. Uh, let's look at this story. It's a powerful story of God setting people free. That's the whole point of the book of Exodus. And by the way, that's the book we are going to be looking at all this month. Exodus. Everybody say Exodus. So uh, Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. If you, if you got a Bible or you could borrow one of the ones on the table, turn to it and look at it because uh, I believe it's important to see the word of God with your own eyes. Read it if you can. It says this. As Pharaoh approached the Israelites, excuse me, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified. Ooh. And they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And then it says this, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Moses is obviously full of faith. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you out today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff. Stretch your hand over the sea to divide the waters. And so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his armies through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. I've asked Matt to come uh, this morning and pray for us as we begin to study the book of Exodus, how God redeems people from freedom into, excuse me, from slavery into freedom. (laughs) Dear Heavenly Father, is this on? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for us being here today. Thank you for this beautiful weather that we may come and hear the recanting of your word and through the knowledge and understanding of your scripture, find you in your heart. Help us to realize that we are here to serve you and not the world. Bless the words that Joe speaks today, that they may speak life to us and that through fellowship and testimony and fellowship with you, Lord, that we might have life. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, a few years ago, I was in Utah. I just moved to Utah, and I was kind of church shopping, kind of going to different churches. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody kind of new to the area? Go Just kind of church shopping. You kind of have to do that when you move to a new area. And I was church shopping, and I went to this church. The worship was great, amazing. The preacher was great and amazing. And uh, I was highly distracted, though, as the preacher was preaching, because there was this little boy in front of me, maybe like six or seven years old. And uh, this church gave out free orange juice and bagels, which is a pretty sweet deal. I mean, we do that here, too. It's kind of a good deal, right? You just you come to church early enough, you get free stuff, right? 
It's a good deal. Anyways, this kid was like, had his orange juice, and he, it, was a, it wasn't like a sippy cup. Uh, the kid was like six or seven, so it was kind of like weird that he was being this immature. But uh, I guess if you're six or seven, you're kind of a boy still. Um, <laughs> and he was like, with his orange juice, he was pretending it was a plane. Like, bram, bram, and his dad, it was, like, it was like, mom, dad, little boy. And the dad was like, son, stop that. You're going to spill your orange juice. Sit still, both hands, face forward. And so he'd sit there for like 30 seconds and then like with his orange juice. Dad, same thing. Son, stop playing with your orange juice. Sit still, both hands on the orange juice. It'd be okay. So he'd sit there for like another maybe 10, 15 seconds until he's like playing again. Dad does it a third time. Son, you need to stop. You're going to spill the orange juice. Of course, the fourth time, the son, you know, it hits his elbow on the chair. The orange juice spills all over the floor. And I'm sitting here watching this, trying to pay attention, being totally distracted by this little boy. And I think God really gave me a picture of something that I'll, I'll tell you the rest of the story. Because the orange juice spilled, and I just, I just thought in my head, like that dad is going to dig into that boy and say, I told you not, not to spill the orange juice. I thought the dad was going to say, go over there, get some towels, clean up this orange juice. But instead... What the father did is the dad didn't say anything. He didn't say any of those things. He didn't say, look what you did, you little jerk. Uh, The dad just quietly got up, went over, got the towels, came back, got on his hands and knees, and cleaned up the orange juice, brought the towels back, and everything was fine. And the the whole time dad was on his hands and knees cleaning, the little boy kept on saying, Daddy, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have been playing with the orange juice. I'm so sorry, Daddy. I'm so sorry. And I, sitting right behind this little boy, I just... I, the image in my heart that I think God gave me through that experience, have you ever seen something like that and, then, and believed that God was teaching you something different? Because I can't tell you anything about what I remember the, the preacher talking about that day, but when I visited this church, I believe God gave me this image of, of that's what our God does for us. When we mess up and we just disobey him, that he comes in and he cleans up the mess of our life. And I think what, as we study the book of Exodus this morning, and in fact all this month, the book of Exodus is a story about God redeeming his people and cleaning up the mess that they kind of got themselves in, and God working miracles in order to take people from slavery into freedom. And, and that message of that, the, the, the idea of that father just cleaning up the mess that the son made is is an image. I was just sitting there in that church service, and I started to tear up because I just really believed that, that God was showing me you know, he's, he's the one that cleans lives. He is the one that brings people from slavery, whether it's slavery from sin or slavery from a messed up life or mistakes, and into freedom and righteousness. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Before we dive into that, uh, a few announcements. If you're brand new to the Mill Sunday School, um, and by the way, the Mill, I will, I'll refer to that a lot. The Mill is our college ministry. You all know that, right? Of course. But if you're new, you might not know that. We meet on Friday nights, and this is kind of a small group of the mill. And so if it's your, your very first time to Sunday school or the mill, uh, if you fill out one of these first-timer cards and bring it into, turn it into this little table up here, we will give you a free CD. Yes! With music and a little sermonette on it, just for filling out this card. Pretty good deal, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't think I, I was too scared to fill one. When I, my very first time in the mill, it took me like two months before I actually filled one out. So don't be like me. Be, be courageous. <laughs> fill it out. No big deal. Um, 
Here's what I want to talk about first. I want to talk on, on your notes. If you look in your notes, it says, why study the Bible? Question mark. And uh, this week, the mill staff went on, uh, we called it an off-site meeting. We went to this city that I never knew existed called Beulah, Colorado. Anybody know about Beulah? <laughs> got some people from there. It's this tiny little town uh, like south of Pueblo and kind of into the mountains. And uh, we stayed at this like rickety little bed and breakfast house. <laughs> it was like really ghetto. I wish I could descri- would go into descriptions of this place, but it was really ghetto. Uh, but it was great for what we were doing. We, we wanted to get away and we just wanted to meet with each other and talk about directions and things like that. And so here we are in Beulah, Colorado. Of course, no cell phone reception, no computer access. Uh, I don't even know if they had running water. just like in the middle of nowhere. Um, just kidding, they did we probably had a combined total of about 11 hours of meeting as as the mill staff me evan aaron uh noel maggie and laura and then uh our wives and kids were all around there so we had about 11 hours of mill staff meeting sounds like fun right (laughs) it kind of was and uh here's what we came up with we all read this book called uh it's called Simple Church, and basically this book is about t- is how we do church simply, and that we need to do, need to what we are in the business of doing as a church is spiritually transforming people's lives. And we came up with this four-step process that I think we've already been doing over the course of the mill. We just really talked about it and nailed it down. And it's this, and you could write this down too because it's really it's it's one of our philosophies of the mill staff now um, that we apply this at the mill and Sunday school and our small groups and stuff like that. And the first one is experience. Experience. And when someone first comes to the mill for the very first time, we want them to experience not only the mill, we want them to experience worship. We want them to experience God. And after they have experienced God, in some way we want to bring them to a place where they can connect that they could connect with God and that they can, can connect with each other. And we really think that, that, that they, they experience God, experience kind of the mill at a Friday night. They connect with each other uh, via small group. How many of you are part of like some sort of small group? Woo! Um, small groups are really good. Connect with each other. Connect with God. And, um, and I really believe that as you connect with each other, that community of God, you're connecting with God because it's the community of God. And then after that, this is, there's, there's only four points if I'm losing you already. But experience, connect. Uh, the, the, the second one is to train. Training or uh, discipleship. And this is really where the Mill Sunday School falls into this kind of model. That what's going on right here as kind of a small group of the Mill, although we're not that small anymore, is that we, uh, there's, there's training that happens here. We're kind of, hey, you hear me talk about how we're the nerds of the Mill? Of the mill? Everybody say, whoo! It's, it's, it's a good thing to be a nerd of the mill. And the nerds of the mill kind of gather at Sunday school. And what, what the kind of purpose of Sunday school is to, for us to get trained and for us to read the Bible in such a way that we learn how to study it and go deeper than, than just an average devo. And so experience, connect, training, and then eventually the last one is uh, service. Serve. And so we want to get people to a point where 
and this could look like a lot of different things. This could look like someone just bringing people to the mill or someone um, brewing coffee so that they have a better experience at the mill so they can get all loaded up on caffeine so that they, they're not tired. Because like, you all are here like, it's early in the morning, right? I mean, I know. You're like in your 20s or something. This is an early morning. So we want to get you loaded up on coffee so that you could be awake and ready. Or it could mean that you lead a small group or that you lead a Bible study small group and train people. And so this is kind of the fourfold model of of how we want to take people in spiritual transformation. And I highlight all this model to highlight this one, that what we're doing in here as the Mill Sunday School is somewhat of training. That, that if, you're, if you come to Mill Sunday School for long enough, you will really be trained in the way of how to read your Bible, how to think theologically, and how to, how to live a lifelong Christian life. So aren't you glad you're in here this morning? Woo! All right. So that I just I wanted to do that because that, that's what's been on my heart after the mill meetings. And so uh, let's talk about why study the Bible. I think there's really two two main ways someone can read the Bible, and uh, either devotionally or doing study. So those if you're writing down notes, number one, how why we study the Bible. I would say there's there's two ways of how. One is a, a sort of a devotion study, and and Excuse me. One is more devotional and one is more study. And I, I said this statement last week, and I really mean it, that, that I, th- I think the careful reading of Scripture is the best way to worship. The careful reading of Scripture is maybe the highest form of worship. And you could define careful reading in a lot of different ways, but you don't need music to worship God, Right? And I think to really what worshiping God is is aligning ourselves with Him and His truth. And I think the best way to do that is through the Bible. This Bible, this book, is is the Word of God. And when we align ourselves with it, we're aligning ourselves with the will and the Word of God. And so, it, this is truth, right? We believe in the Bible in here. And so, it, as we carefully read Scripture, either by devotion or by studying the Word, I really think it's the highest form of worship. And so let's look at those two in particular. A devotional kind of study is when maybe you look at the Psalms and you say, God, would you speak to me through this Psalm? And you read the Psalm, and maybe you pray through the Psalm, and maybe you're just asking God to speak to you. You're not really studying it, you're just reading it. You know what I'm talking about, right? And you know the Word of God, the Bible is fresh and new. How you could read something, like you just read it last week, but you reread it, and you're like, wow, this is new, this is good. Have you read it like that before? Yes, of course you have. Um, I was reading through Exodus a couple, I guess it was a couple weeks ago, with Erica. We read the Bible every day. We think that's pretty important. And so we were reading, and I was just reading, for of all things, the Ten Commandments. And I was reading through and got to the Fourth Commandment. Anybody know what that one is? Yes, honor the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Uh, six days you shall work, and on the seventh you are to rest. And I was just reading that, and I wasn't really studying it. I was just reading it, and God spoke to me through that. And I believe that, that what God was showing me was that really a trust in Him is to not be busy all the time, and not to be a workaholic, and not to, to just keep running around doing stuff, but to trust in the Lord and know that He will work for you. And so if you, uh, just reading that spoke to my heart. But then there's a different type of reading. So that's kind of a devotional type of reading. The study type of reading is what we're going to get into today. The study is when you're actually maybe using the, my Bible is a study Bible, so it has study notes at the bottom. And when you read those notes, and, you, and maybe a 
lot of study happens when we kind of get confused reading the Bible. Has anybody ever been confused reading the Bible? You're like, what in the world does this mean? I think sometimes that could lead into a type of studying the Scripture, of trying to figure out, what the heck does this mean? Have you ever thought that? As you're reading the Bible, you're like, what? What does that mean? And you do some of the things like cross-referencing, a very kind of like Jewish kind of study of, of really narrowing it down and maybe memorizing, maybe cross-referencing, maybe using your study notes uh, or even getting, this is called a, uh, a commentary. This book is all a commentary on the book of Exodus. Have you ever seen a commentary before? It's kind of like amazing that someone could write this book about this book. <laughs> and so here's Exodus right here, and someone took the book of Exodus and wrote this much about it. And so, and the reason why is, is this statement right here. If you're taking notes, this statement is kind of key about why we need to study the Bible. This statement is, and it might shock you at first if you've never heard it. You're like, what? What kind of heresy? But here's the statement. Listen carefully. The Bible is not written to us. The Bible is not written to us, but it's written for us. If you've been coming to Mill Sunday School for a while, you've probably heard me say that. That the Bible's not written to us, but it is written for us. That, that some of these books of the Bible, for instance, like the book of Corinthians. Is it written to us, New Life Church, 2008? No, it says exactly who it's written to. It says Paul, apostle of God, written to the churches in Corinth. Is it written to us? No, it's written to the churches in Corinth. But is it written for us? Yes. Is it, does it have truth? Is it the word of God? Yes. And so as we read the book of Exodus, we kind of have to realize that it was written in an ancient time to an ancient people, and we have to get back into it and read it for as if we were reading in this ancient time so that we can understand it. And that's, I think, how we, how we do a study of the Scripture. And I remember first falling in love with studying the Scripture is uh, probably like... When I was, I was when I was living in Utah a few years ago, there was this coffee shop, and some of you know that in Utah, coffee shops are kind of a weird thing because the mass population of Utah are our friends, the Mormons, and our friends, the Mormons, don't drink coffee, right? So they may, if they were, if they came to Mill Sunday School, they might be offended that I'm up here drinking coffee as I'm teaching, but but we just think, you know, it's coffee, it's the Christian crack, it's good. <laughs> I hope you know I'm half kidding. Um, but only half. Um, so you'd go into a coffee shop in Utah, and you know who you'd meet? You'd meet lots of other Christians who think it's perfectly okay to drink a cup of coffee. So I fell in love with drinking coffee and studying my Bible. I'd go, I'd sit down with my Bible, maybe some other, a few other commentaries or books, and I'd have two highlighters, one blue one and one yellow one. And with the blue one, I would just highlight things that were cool. It's like, wow, this is cool. I've never heard this before. This is cool. Highlight blue. And if it inspired me, I'm like, wow, this is what God is speaking to me. This is awesome. I would highlight it in yellow. And this is actually my, the same Bible I've had uh, my whole Christian life. And so you could look at and see there's blue and highlighting all over the place of things that I thought were interesting and things that I thought were inspiring. And I fell in love in this Utah coffee shop was studying the Bible. And I'd often study with a friend of mine who was a, a youth pastor but then kind of retired. And he was kind of like a Yoda, kind of Socrates kind of guy. And I would ask him questions like, what does this mean? Look at this passage in, in Exodus about this plague. Like, what, what, 
What's going on here? And he would never just answer me. He would say, well, Joe, what's the context of this book of Exodus? And I'd be like, ooh, that's a good question. Let me, let me kind of study that. What's the context of this or that? Or who do you think wrote this? Or what kind of culture do you think they wrote this in? And he never just gave me answers. He allowed me to kind of think through and study the Bible for myself. And so that's what we're going to do here this whole month as we study the book of Exodus. We're going to kind of think through theologically and study the book of Exodus. Does that sound fun? All right, here's what I want you to do. Before we jump into Exodus, Exodus, I realized, has so many stories in it. It's just ridiculous. We only have four Sundays this month uh, to really dive into the book of Exodus, and there's like a ton of really good stories in the book of Exodus. Would you talk amongst yourselves and just list a few of the stories that you know are in the book of Exodus? Can you do that? You, and you, you could open up your Bible and look for just a second. I'll, I'll just give you a few seconds to write down a few. Ready? Get set. Go. All right, what are some of the things in the book of Exodus? You could just yell them out if you want. Does anyone like yelling? Of course you do. What are some stories in the book of Exodus? The manna from heaven. What else do we got? The golden calf. What other stories? The burning bush. What else? The ark of the covenant. Yeah. The Red Sea. Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments. The plagues, the ten plagues. What else? The, the oppression, the freedom. Look on the bat. This is called a, uh, uh, we call it the skillet. Uh, it's like a Sunday school millet because uh, we give out the millet on Friday nights. And on the back of this is, uh, what's go- it says what's going on. And then it says, uh, basically there's a reading list here. The top ten reading list of the book of Exodus. And so if you wanted to, to go above and beyond, kind of study the book of Exodus all this month, here is the top ten list of, of what you, you did this gotta reads of the book of Exodus. The oppression of the Israelites, number one. Moses has a baby. Remember that? The little, like, the, like what is the basket in the river, the Nile? Remember that story? That's in there. The burning bush, number three. Number four, the plagues, the last plague specifically, the crossing of the Red Sea, the manna, Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments, Golden Calf, and the setting up of the tabernacle. These are the ten that, that I just this composed this list of ten top ten reads of the book of Exodus. So if you were... Um, so inclined to be like, man, I really want to get into the study of God's Word through the book of Exodus. This would be a really good place to start. The top ten reading list. And uh, 
It's good stuff. It's really good stuff. The book of Exodus is so cool. Um, here is, on your notes, it says how to read Exodus. And the how to read Exodus is to know kind of the author, the audience, and the cultural context. The big word of doing that, do you know the big word? It's called hermeneutics or exegesis. Have you heard those two words before? They're like the big fancy words to impress ladies with. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I hope you know that I'm just kidding. Uh, Exodus, uh, excuse me, exegesis, hermeneutics, kind of the study of the Bible. And so here's some things that you might want to know. The term exodus means what? Exit. Yeah, it means that the Israelites exit out of Egypt and they're going to end up in the promised land. However, there's a lot of wandering around in the desert through the book of Exodus. Um, In Hebrew, the Hebrew name is an exodus. It's in uh, in Hebrew. It's called Ella Shemoth. You don't need to know that. But sometimes uh, the Hebrew people are very uh, um, creative and sometimes they're not really that creative. (laughs) And this is an instance where they're not really creative because that word, what they call the book is, these are the names. That's what they, they call the book of Exodus. They don't call it Exodus. They call it in Hebrew, these are the names. Where did they get that from? Look at Exodus 1-1. The first four words, <laughs> classic. These are the names. That's good. That's a good title, huh? You're like, I don't know what to call it. Well, let's call it, these are the names, the first words of the book. And so, um, and the reason why they do that is because the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are called the what? The Pentateuch. Yeah, excellent. I've heard, I heard uh, someone say it. The Pentateuch. And they were all considered one big book. We break it up. They're really big books. The Jewish people even break it up. But it's really considered to be one whole story of these five books. And so there's really no gap between the ending of Exodus and the beginning, excuse me, the ending of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And so the Jewish people just called it, well, these are the names of, and that's where this this portion of the story starts. So it's kind of good to know that the first five books of the Bible considered one big whole story, considered one big whole story written by, do you know who we consider the author of the books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible to be? Yeah, the dude Moses. Although at the very end of Deuteronomy, there's kind of a problem with that. You know what the problem is? Yeah, Moses dies. It'd be kind of hard to write about Moses' death. So what we really think happened is that Moses wrote a whole bunch of it and compiled a whole bunch of it. And then obviously someone like Joshua had to finish the story and talk about the ending of Deuteronomy and Moses' own death. But look at Exodus. Turn over here, if you can, to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. Uh, verse 27 and 28. Exodus 34, 27 and 28 says this. This is the Lord speaking uh, to Moses. It says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So he wrote... The, the word of the covenant, and the Jewish people consider the word of the covenant to be the whole Pentateuch, and he wrote it on tablets. I think we have a picture of, of a tablet, an ancient tablet, of what this could have looked like. It's just like a piece of rock with a bunch of scribbles on it. Can you imagine? Like, no word document when you're just, like, you know, editing stuff, but, like, actually chiseling out words on tablets. 
It'd be a fun day, huh? That'd be a fun 40 days. And then, and, then, and then even more. I mean, it'd take a long time. I mean, imagine chiseling out like this much of the Bible on, on rock. That'd be a good time, huh? <laughs> and a lot of the history was oral. A lot of the stories, you know, the little Jewish boy, they, didn't, they weren't taught reading, writing, arithmetic. You know what they were taught? Why don't you sit down and memorize the Pentateuch? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized as a little boy. And so they, they, if you asked them, like, hey, what's 19 times 5? They probably couldn't tell you. But if you, if you said, recite the book of Leviticus, they would just like, start throwing down. So, I mean, a very different type of education, a very different type of thinking, but a very important type because the history was oral. I mean, how many times could you write on a scroll with your hand or write on these tablets the books in order to save them and keep them for the next generations? It's pretty cool to think about how, how this, a lot of these stories were probably oral traditions that Moses compiled, like the story of Noah, the story of Abraham, were probably oral stories that, that, that Moses wrote down. And so... When did he write this book? Well, we think that the Exodus probably happened or is written down sometime around 1400 B.C. If you're writing notes down, 1400 B.C., is that a long time ago? Yeah, that's a really long time ago. That's like the age of like, the bronze, is that the Bronze Age? I mean, that's a really long time ago. Before like, can you imagine before like Nintendos and before TVs and cell phones? Can you imagine insane i can't even imagine it um the audience of course the ancient israelite people they considered the pentateuch to be their history book they considered it to be god's word to them and so um if you if you want just to remind you again that reading list on the back is for you to to go through and i would just i would encourage you i would challenge you to read these top 10 lists as we study the book of exodus and um yeah the book of Exodus. I mean, think about all the really cool stories. Like all the stories are like the need to know, the need to know Sunday school stories. How many of them are in the book of Exodus? Pretty cool. Here's the main theme of the book of Exodus. If you're writing stuff down, the main theme of the whole book of Exodus is moving people from slavery into freedom. Moving people from slavery into freedom. And if you think about it, kind of in a spiritual sense, the whole theme of this entire book of the Bible is about moving people from slavery and into freedom. Because the, the book of the Bible starts off with the story of Adam. And Adam makes a mistake and he disobeys God and a lot of bad stuff happens and enters into the non-perfect world of God. And, and the whole story of the Bible, the ending... You know, throughout the Bible is God's redemption of his people, sending Jesus Christ as a redemption for his people. And the book ends with the book of Revelation, this book of people returning to this garden paradise because of the work of God, because of the work of Christ. And so Exodus really mirrors this whole salvation story of, of God's redemption of his people. And so let's talk about the slavery of the Egyptians. Look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 11. Here's a little context, because it's just important to have context. Um, before we read this, you could stick your finger. I said uh, Exodus 1, 11. You could hold your finger there. We will read it in just a second. But the reason why the, the Israelites are in Egypt, um, they were in Israel. They're kind of in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Doesn't that sound delicious? Doesn't that sound good? Yeah, it does. It's like, 
It's just good. And so they're in the land of milk and honey, but the land of milk and honey, there's a, a famine. And so they have a relative named Joseph. He's in Egypt. And so all the Israelites, uh, all the descendants of Abraham, go into Egypt and start living there in this part of the land called Goshen along the Nile. And they live there, and they multiply and reproduce, and they're having a good time. They're enjoying themselves. And... Uh, the Egyptians begin to see that their culture, their group of people is really growing. And they don't like that. They're like, this is Egypt. We're Egyptians. We rule over this area. Let's put you guys into slavery. And so here's what they do. Uh, Exodus 1 verse 11 said, So they put slave masters over them, Egyptian slave masters over the Israelites, God's chosen people, to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. And when I was in, uh, how many of you were in Africa just a few weeks ago with the mill missions? Uh, I was in Uganda and hearing a, a, this. I was just talking to an LDP student, um, a compassion student. You know what compassion is, right? The organization that sponsors kids. And I was talking to this guy that was in college, now getting sponsored through compassion to go to college. And he was sharing with me his testimony. And he talked about how, as he was a little boy around the age of 10, 9 or 10, his, his mom and his dad passed away. And he had no one to take care of him. So he only owned the clothes on his back and a blanket, and he, and he slept out in the jungle, and he, had, he had, a, had a job of making bricks. I think we have a picture of uh, some people in Africa making bricks. It's, it's just really, really ridiculously hard work. And uh, he talk, I mean, we saw people all over the place in Uganda with the red sand of Africa, kind of mixing it with water and getting this clay thing kind of going on and taking a big pile of mud and kind of throwing it into this wooden... Uh, just square brick and, and, and wiping it off and then kind of laying the brick out and there you have a brick you put it either on some uh, straw or on pieces of wood to dry out and then you take those kind of wet bricks after they've dried out and then you kind of light a fire and, and burn them to kill them to harden them and this, this, this guy was telling the testimony of when he was 9 or 10 and he lost his parents and how the only job he can get was as a brick maker making bricks 12 hours a day, make hundreds and hundreds of br- bricks per day. And he was getting, he said he got paid less than a dollar a day. He said he got paid uh, just enough money to buy some food. And he said he had just enough money to buy food and enough alcohol for the night to get himself drunk and to find some place in the jungle to lay down and forget about his pain of losing his mom and his dad and sleep in the jungle, wake up the next morning and go make some bricks some more for another 12 hours. And he was sharing the story about how he met uh, an orphanage worker and how they were involved with compassion and how he they took in this little boy that was making bricks and getting drunk every night to forget his pain. And they took him in and, and they, he said that compassion, you know, he was sponsored with an American sponsor and how this American kept writing him letters and he found Jesus Christ through compassion and then and then not only and then finding a school to go to through the orphanage and then even getting to go to college 
and, and having his college paid for by his American sponsor. And he just shared us this testimony of how his life was redeemed almost from the slavery to, to hard labor as a kid and the slavery to alcoholism. As a young kid, I couldn't even imagine it. Um, and how God redeemed him from this slavery into freedom through Christ. And it was just an awesome testimony. And I see that here in the book of Exodus, how these people are literally slaves to Egyptians and how the Egyptians worked them even harder and were possibly jealous that they were, that they were growing and multiplying as a civilization of their own. But God ends up providing freedom, freedom from captivity, freedom from their oppression. And he does that through the ten plagues. And so on your, the, the front cover of your notes is... Uh, <laughs> It's ridiculous, really. Uh, the Passover ten plagues finger puppets. Do you see those guys? Um, like what? The one that kind of looks like a dark Gumby-looking character. That's the plague of blood. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know why that's funny. It's not. Shouldn't be laughing. The next one to the right is frogs, and then gnats, and then it looks like the. I don't know how the lion. Or maybe it's a sheep. That looks like a lion. I guess that's the plague of livestock. There's ten plagues in the book of Exodus. And they start off with, uh, looks like it starts in page, uh, <laughs> page. Uh, looks like it starts in Exodus chapter 7 is the first plague. The plague of blood. How the Nile and the water in Egypt turns into blood. And if you can imagine it, um, Egypt is this place that's kind of in the desert. And it's one of the very first civilizations on the face of the earth um, to, to have a calendar, to kind of uh, sit down and plot, and not to be wanderers, but to sit and plot this land along the Nile. And in the ancient times, the Nile would flood, and there'd be floodplains, and then the Nile would recede, and this rich soil of the, of the silt would be all over the land, and people would plant stuff. And I think we have a picture, we have a picture of Egypt this is a satellite photo of Egypt, and you could see how desert it is around all of Egypt, and yet the Nile is like this little strip of green, lush area. And in ancient times, that area would, would flood and create uh, this beautiful land, and so people would plant their stuff there and live there. And the whole idea of this mystery of this water, this life-giving water in Egypt, was fascinating to people. Did you know that the Assyrians, the Romans, the Greeks all tried to find the source of the Nile, and yet they couldn't find it. As they kept on going south uh, to try to find the source of the Nile, they'd either get malaria or they'd want to run into waterfalls or jungles or tribes that were like, what are you doing on my land? Get out. Um, it wasn't until 1859. Think about that. For thousands and thousands of years, the Western world did not know the source of the Nile until 1858. Isn't that fascinating to you? It, I was reading this book with uh, Evan Martin when we were uh, hanging out in Africa, The Journeys of, of Stanley Livingston and John Speak. And it was a guy named John Speak who found the source of the Nile, which is what? Do you know? Yeah, Lake Victoria in, in, uh, kind of in Uganda. And uh, so that's, that's the source of, the, of this great river, the Nile. And so there's all this mystery about the water. And so this first plague of God... Basically, uh, like the song says, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Let my people go. And what does Pharaoh say? 
No. And, and so, and, and Moses says, there's going to be a plague. And the plague is of the plague of water. So here's this water, this life-giving water that they kind of have control over that's kind of a mystery to them about how, when it comes and when it goes. And they kind of pray to the gods of the Nile to, to come every year. And here's God, Yahweh, God, the, the great I Am, the God of the Israelites, taking power over their water, taking power over the gods of this Nile and turning it into blood. And then so after this horrible plague, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And then Pharaoh says, no. (laughs) And then there's the plague of the frogs. Out of the Nile comes all these frogs everywhere. And this, this, they, they worshiped a god of fertility that was kind of shaped like a frog. And so here's this, all these frogs everywhere. God himself, the God of Israel, showing that he's more powerful than this fertility god. And so just imagine all these frogs and this fertility of just mating frogs everywhere <laughs> and dying and their cor- their little carcasses everywhere and the stink of all these frogs and so that plague happens Moses says let my people go Pharaoh says no and then and then comes out these other plagues the plague of gnats um the plague of, of flies the plague of the sacred bulls the plague of the boils comes next and showing that that our God, the God of Israel, the great I Am, is more powerful than the gods of the air, Beelzebub, the gods of the earth, because he hits his staff on the earth, and from the earth and the dust, the gnats come out and the lice come out. That's the God of Seth, the God of the sacred bulls, the boils showing the, Israel, showing the Egyptians that God is more powerful than their medical shamans. The, the plague of the hail, that God is more powerful than their weather, you know, praying to these weather gods. The plague of the locusts saying that the, the God of Israel is more powerful than your gods of, of the agriculture. And the last, the second to the last plague is the plague of darkness in ancient egypt they worshiped the god ra that was their most important god the god of the sun yeah the sun god i think we have a picture of the sun it's kind of like usually like this bird-like character with uh like a sun over his head that's that's the god of ra and the god of ra was supposedly the father of pharaoh so here this ninth and second to most important plague is of the plague of the sun god himself for three days, there was darkness all over Egypt. And so God is saying, he's more powerful than this Egyptian God. Let these people go because God himself is going to free these people. And of course, Pharaoh says, no. And so there's the 10th and the final plague. This is the plague of the firstborn of the Passover. Do you know this plague? Basically, it's the plague that kills every firstborn uh, person in someone's family, including the Pharaoh's own son was killed. Do you remember how the book of Exodus starts off? It starts off with Moses being placed in a basket. Why was he placed in a basket? Because the Egyptians were killing all the males of of the Israelites. And so it's this last and final plague that says Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is considered a god, that the God of Israel is even more powerful than Pharaoh, this, this God-like character of ancient Egypt, saying the God of Israel is going to free these Israelites, even if it means taking your own son, Pharaoh, that God of Israel is more powerful than Pharaoh himself. 
And of course, it happens. And uh, the Pharaoh's son is killed. Pharaoh finally says, yes, you may go. And so the Israelites go. And then Pharaoh has a change of heart, sends an army after them. And then the story we read this morning of the Red Sea, how the Red Sea opens. And you've, you've probably seen it in the movies or you've read. Uh, did you guys see The Prince of Egypt, right? It's a sweet movie. Um, you should go rent it and watch it again. Um, I th- I pr- we probably will. Um, uh, the Red Sea like opens up and there's like a whale. Do you see that scene? There's like a whale in there. Like, dude, sweet, there's a whale in there. Um, I don't know if there's whale. Is there even rails in the whales in the Red Sea? I don't think there is. Anyway, I don't know. Uh, maybe there was back then. Because <laughs> if it's on TV, it's obviously true. Um, but the, op- the Red Sea opens up. The Israelites cross it, and then the Egyptians get swallowed up. And what this picture is of is the picture of God redeeming his people, taking them from slavery and into freedom. And as I meet with, uh, as I'm a pastor of the mill, an associate pastor of the mill, I get to do a lot of meeting with uh, a lot of different guys. And usually as I'm meeting with guys, we'll have coffee or something or just kind of chit-chat. We'll usually talk about, uh, what I like to talk about is the three L's, ladies, lust, and Lord. And so I'll ask, I'll ask the guy, how are you doing with the ladies? How are you doing with the Lord? How, and then I'll ask him, how are you doing with lust? And sometimes uh, what guys struggle with the most is lust. And as I talk to guys, they'll, they'll, they'll say, oh, I'm doing okay. Or, you know what, I'm really struggling. I'm, I'm doing not so good at this point. I've done good uh, in my life. Maybe I have had a month or a year of freedom from lustful things, lustful thoughts, and specifically the Internet. And they'll talk about how it's an enslavement how it's, it's, it's something that entraps them. And I, I just want to share this thought that, that our God is the God that miraculously takes people from slavery into freedom. And it's a work of the Lord. And I was just talking to a guy uh, about, I guess it was a couple weeks ago now, and he was talking about how, oh, I'm going to do, try to do better. I'm not doing very good right now. I'm kind of messing up a lot, but I'm going to try. And I, I'm, I, just, I know I can do better if I just try. And I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to try harder. And I kind of stopped him in mid-sentence, and I said, you know what, I think you are, are trying too hard. Have you thought about letting God do the work for you? Have you thought about letting God do his miraculous work of taking you from slavery and into freedom? Have you thought about the fact that maybe you're thinking that you can on your own get out of this slavery, this bondage, and, and allow the work of God to get you out of it? And it, for him, it was this, this, this thought of like, wow, I guess, I guess I don't have to try. I guess I don't have to just work harder and keep working harder at this. But it really is a, a gift of God, a miracle that freedom can happen, that, 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 that we can move from slavery in our life to freedom. In fact, the, um, the Alcoholics Anonymous, the AA has, has 12 steps in their program. And uh, Alcoholics Anonymous started kind of as a Christian thing. Now it's a very kind of a secular thing that really helps people get out of the slavery of alcohol. Right now there's 1.8 million members in Alcoholics Anonymous. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's, it's, it's a blessing that, that so many people are, go from slavery to alcohol and this escape mechanism into the freedom. And here's the first three steps. The step one is that we're powerless over the addiction. Number two... Um, Come to believe that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity. Do you see that? So here, here's this kind of secular organization that says, here's, here's 12 steps. The first one, that you're powerless. The second one, that, that you need the help of an almighty power 
to get you out of this addiction. Number three, make a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God. Isn't that amazing? Don't you know people that I know personally, lots of people, I could name probably five that have gone through Alcoholics Anonymous and have their life has totally been reconciled from this slavery of alcohol into freedom by this 12-step program. And, and it says that God himself turned your life over to the will and to the care of God. Because it really works. I mean, here's kind of a secular organization that says, if you want to get free, you know what you have to do? Turn your life over to the will of God and the power and the care of God. And that's what I see in the book of Exodus. This, this group of people turning their, all their power over to God who can free them. They're not powerful enough to go against the armies of Egypt. But they, it says, the passage we read today, Moses says, if you will just be still and trust in the power of God, you will see his redemption in your life and you will see it. As we close, I want to read... Um, one story for you, and then we'll, we'll close in prayer. And this story is about um, the slave times, the 1800s. It says this, An Englishman went to California. Gold had been discovered, and he struck it rich. On his way home, he saw a public auction in New Orleans of a beautiful slave girl. Within minutes, bids surpassed what most, most slave owners would pay for a black girl. The auctioneer called out, Going once, going twice, and in a moment, the Englishman yelled, yelled out a figure. It was exactly twice the previous bid. The crowd laughed. They thought the Englishman was joking. The auctioneer motioned for him to come forward. He wanted to see the money. The Englishman opened up his bag of gold, and the auctioneer's eyes widened as he shook his head in disbelief. The auctioneer paid for the girl and walked to the platform. She spat right into her new owner's face, saying, I hate you. The girl couldn't make out what was happening. Her new owner seemed to be looking for something or someone as they walked down the street. Finally, they stopped outside a shop. The girl waited outside as the new owner went inside. She couldn't make out what was going on inside. Someone was saying loudly, It's the law. It's the law. When she looked through the window, she saw her owner pouring out a bag of gold. She saw the store owner pick up the gold and leave the room. He came back with some papers. Both men had signed them. When the Englishman came out of the store, he handed the papers to the girl. He said, Here are your emancipation papers. You are free. But the girl quickly yelled back, I hate you. Why do you make fun of me? No, listen. These are your freedom papers. You are a free person. The girl looked at the papers. She couldn't read them, but they looked important. You bought me, she said, and now you're setting me free? The Englishman assured her that he had bought her to set her free. Tears began to run down her face. Then she started to sob and fell to the ground. You bought me to set me free. You bought me to set me free. She, keep, she kept repeating that, and the girl put her arms around his legs, and she rocked to and fro. She looked up and said, All I want to do is to serve you, because you bought me and you set me free. Let's pray this morning to our God. God, right now we worship you as the God of the Bible, as the God of Jacob and Abraham and Isaac, and the God of Moses, the God of the Exodus that set people from slavery into freedom. God, you are that same God whom we worship today. God, you are in the business of setting people free. 
You, God, you are in the business of, of allowing miracles to happen in order to set people free from the bondage of sl- sin, the bondage of, of slavery and, and evil thoughts, the, th- the things of mistakes in our lives. God, you set us free from those things. God, would you allow us to just let your work flow through our life? God, as participants in the Mill Sunday School, God, would you open our hearts in a new way to receive your freedom? Jesus, we want your work to be done on this earth, your miraculous work of buying us to set us free to happen. Jesus, we're so amazed by you that you are a God that came to this earth to set us free. And that story is throughout the Bible. That story is an exodus of you redeeming your people. Jesus, we are in love with you. We kneel down at your feet and we just say, thank you. We will serve you for the rest of our life because you have set us free. God, we love you. We praise you. We leave here full of joy because it is your miraculous work inside of us that sets us free. So we love you and praise you. And everybody screamed, Amen.